Hello, hello. Did you guys have an okay day? Yeah? Right on. You know, it was good. No one ever asks. Thanks for asking. I had a great day. Hey, um, I'd love to jump into tonight's uh, chapel with a little bit more of a serious tone, if that's okay with you guys. And in fact, tonight, I want to share some stuff with you that's it's not the easiest part to talk about. But if we can understand the, the truth of what sin is and how it affects us, then we get to get to some really good news as this week progresses. But whenever I think about this conversation of sin, especially for a group of people that I mostly don't know, I, I feel that it's important to express to you the weight of this topic. Have you guys ever heard the word sin before? You know what that word means, yeah? Yeah. And in the back with that hat that just raised your hand, what, what is sin? Yeah, sunglasses on your hat. Yeah. Real loud, I can't hear you. Some, someone relay it. Okay, got it. I thought we were still talking about sin. I was like, I guess? Nope, that's not the right definition. Okay, I'm sorry your voice is gone right here. The thing that separates us from God, right? That's it. That was the answer. Um, it's important that we know what this conversation and what this topic is. If you think back to the first night that we were um, kind of unpacking this theme together, we looked at this idea that we live in a world where truth has become subject to the beholder. Truth has become something that has, has gone from an absolute two plus two equals four, grass is green, the sky is blue, to this really um, sort of weird, slippery, slimy definition that we would call my truth. And by my truth, what we mean is my experience or how that left me feeling as a result of it. You tracking with me? This is kind of some deep stuff, okay? Sin is an incredibly important concept for us to understand because if we don't grasp sin, then we don't grasp the gospel, right? And the gospel is good news, because sin is terrible news. You see, sin is like a diagnosis. When I, was, uh, when I was just starting out my career as a youth pastor about 12, 15 years ago, somewhere in there, it was 2009, so 13 years ago. I remember I was sitting in a staff meeting and my phone rang and it was my dad. And you guys may not know this, maybe counselors, youth pastors know this, but you know, when your parents call and you're getting older and they're getting older, it's, it's cause for concern sometimes. And so I was like, that's strange. My dad knows I'm in a meeting. I wonder why he's calling. So I excused myself from the meeting and I went out into the hallway of the church and my dad said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm at work. What's going on? He said, uh, your mom has had a fall. She, she broke her hip. I said, oh, it's terrible. He said, so we took her to the hospital to figure out what happened and, um, well, it turns out that your mom has stage four breast cancer with 18 months to live. I think about that day often. I think about that day often for two reasons. One, there's no arguing. There's no my truth when it comes to cancer. Like, if I told my dad, like, well, I just don't agree with that, that does nothing for my mom, does it? She's still left with the ramifications of her body turning on itself and, and trying to kill her. 
The second reason I remember that is because my mom, 13 years ago, was given an 18-month-to-live diagnosis, and she's still alive today, right? So, so, I share that because in order for us to fully understand and comprehend this, this concept of sin, we very much have to view it like a diagnosis, meaning however you feel about what I'm going to share, however you feel about the harsh truth that the Bible teaches on the topic of sin is irrelevant because sin still exists. Does that make sense? Sin is still something very real. Sin is still something that we have to grapple with as humans. And sin has a couple of effects. Sin's effect on culture is in the last month. Someone drove to a school in Texas and murdered 19 children and two teachers. And just the week before that, someone, because they... they, they they didn't like the color of someone's skin, drove to a grocery store and murdered people, wiping out generations. Like sin exists in this world, and the effects of sin can be seen and felt by all of us here today. But sin is not a term that's just reserved for the evil that exists in the world. You see, sin is a term that exists in very much a spiritual sense as, what's your name? Maria. As Maria? As Maria told us, sin exists in, in the Bible as something that has separated us from God, okay? And so here's what we're going to do tonight. Tonight, we're going to read a story that illustrates this concept of sin perfectly for us, and then I'm going to break it down for you in a way that hopefully we can all understand. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to read the first 10 verses, 11 verses. We're going to talk about this diagnosis of sin that exists in the world today and the effects that it's having on all of us. John chapter 8, we're going to read the first 11 verses in John 8. And it says this, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. And then they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Again, he stopped, stooped down, and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for another day at camp. It seemed like it was just an awesome day for almost everyone here having fun, playing in the pond, 
chilling with our friends. Lord, I pray that you'd allow our minds to change gears and to focus for the next 30 or so minutes to help us to understand the thing that gets in between us and experiencing your love. The thing that we talked about embodies who you are. Your word says you are love. And our sin keeps us from getting to experience that to the fullest. Help us to have mature ears and minds tonight and hearts that are willing to receive a hard truth. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. So what we see happening here in this passage, friends, is a little bit of an adult concept, adult material. So please bear with me and use all of your maturity as I help you understand what's going on. Jesus is at the temple. He's at church. He's at a Jewish temple teaching people. This was very custom for Jesus and for the culture at that time. Why? Well, because removed of cell phones, televisions, DVDs, Blu-rays, VCRs, any modern entertainment technology, this is one of the main ways that people would go and spend their time. They would hear a teacher. They would hear a storyteller. They would go and listen to people that were offering them some form of entertainment. In this case, there's a group of people at church listening to Jesus teach them. You can almost picture the smells, the high, dirty, white columns, the the sacrificial pools. Maybe there was a podium. Maybe there were horns or trumpets or instruments there as people were accustomed to showing up to church day in and day out to listen to someone teach. Jesus, very similar to what I'm doing now, I'm not Jesus, but very similar to what I'm doing now, was teaching a crowd of people. And in the middle of his teaching, the back door kicks open. And in walk the pastors, the elders, the leaders of the temple at that time with a woman, the Bible tells us, who was caught in the act of adultery. Now please turn your maturity up for a moment here with me because adultery is is having sexual relations with someone that you are not married to. And so this woman was caught in the act of doing something that was sinful and shameful by all the pastors of her church. And what the Bible tells us is that these guys grabbed her and they took her to church and they propped her up in front of Jesus for one sole purpose, to question him, to catch him, to do anything they could do to undermine the power and presence and authority that Jesus had been gaining and building during his earthly ministry at that time. I think about this woman sometimes. What a shameful, embarrassing moment this must have been for her. I'm not negating what she did and the wrongfulness of it, But could you imagine at your worst moment being caught by your pastor and dragged before the church only for them to use you as a means to question the person teaching at that time? That's precisely what's going on here. And so this woman, we don't even really get to know her name, we're not really sure what's going on, is used as a tool to discredit the ministry of Jesus. These religious leaders who would have been very well versed in the Old Testament law, they say to Jesus, they say, hey, what do we do with her? Because Moses' law is very clear that people doing what we caught her doing should be killed in front of everybody, that she should be stoned. And so Jesus, what, what do you want us to do? If you're like some religious leader, you're telling people you're God, you tell us, what would you do, oh wise Jesus, in this moment? I love that Jesus doesn't answer right away. In the word, it tells us that he knelt down and began to draw in the dirt Sometimes, if I'm bored or if I'm reading this in my devotional, I'll ponder, what did he write? I have no idea. No clue. Could have been anything. 
truthfully, not even really worth speculating because I don't think the point of this story is for us to guess whether or not Jesus was playing tic-tac-toe or if Jesus was drawing some animal that he really fought hard to be invented in the garden but didn't quite make the cut. We have no idea what Jesus was riding in the dirt, but what we do know is that he was being set up, that he was being trapped. So Jesus addresses these men, these wise religious men, and he puts the question back onto them by saying, you're right. That is what the law tells us to do. So let's make it even more interesting. Any of you who are without sin can throw the first stone. I'll wait. I'll stand here. And then look at what the text tells us in verse 9. It says that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. I can't help but wonder if their age lent them to be more wise than their counterparts standing there. It says until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Who has condemned you? No one, sir. Then he says this, then neither do I go now and leave your life of sin. You see, we've talked a lot about God this week. And one of the primary characteristics of God is on full display in this moment here in John chapter 8. And it's the moment where Jesus' deity, Jesus' identity as God is obvious for everyone to see. How? Well, because who's the only person here who had any right to throw a stone at this woman who had been caught in her sin? Who would it have been? Who? Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you why. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, it's the only place in the Bible where one word is used three times over to describe God. It was a literary device. It was a way that people would write with emphasis, kind of like putting an exclamation mark or underlining at the end of a sentence or in a text message. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we learn that the character of God is holy, 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 three times over. That God's character is so holy that they, had, they couldn't just say it once, they had to say it three times. And that word holy means set apart. That word holy means not like us. That word holy means above us. That word holy means untouchable, without sin, without blemish. Again, we're talking about a God who described in 1 John 4, 8 is quite literally love. And so in this moment where these men have used a woman caught in a sinful, shameful act to try and undermine his ministry, Jesus is quite literally the only one without sin. Jesus is quite literally the only person in this passage who could have hurled a stone of judgment at this woman, but he saves it. And he doubles down on his love for her by saying, well, you know what, then neither do I condemn you. Almost as if to say, hey, I could, but I'm not going to. And instead, I'm gonna give you an invitation to go and live life a different way. I'm gonna extend to you an invitation to go and sin no more. Jesus is the only sinless one. And this is kind of where our diagnosis with sin begins to become good news. In order for us to know that, though, let's, let's get a really good, clear definition for what sin is. You see, in Scripture, we see sin used as a word to describe thoughts, deeds, words, 
attitudes and actions that go against God's holiness and God's perfection. And so anytime we do something that would be deemed imperfect in the eyes of God, that is a sin. And sometimes, because we like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, there's a book in your Old Testament called the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, as well as in the book of Proverbs, there's a line that always sticks out to me, and it says, everyone's wise in their own eyes. You see, in my eyes and in your eyes, when I look at myself, depending on how you're wired, depending on how you were raised, you may not think you're that bad of a person. And if we were to bring out some of history's worst people, we would certainly say, Hitler, way over there. Unabomber, way over there. Genghis Khan, way over there. Pick your favorite real-life villain, evil person, way over there. I'm bad, but I would be like over here. Like, I'm not as bad as those guys. I'd be like over here. Still not perfect, but not nearly as bad as them. And that's a version of us trying to inject our truth into this paradigm and into this reality that God has laid out for us. You see, it doesn't matter if I'm the worst person on earth or if I've just lied a couple times. Scripture's clear about sin. Our thoughts, our deeds, our words, our attitudes, and our actions that goes against God's perfection, Scripture tells us in the book of Romans chapter 3.23. I want you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 3.23. If you're in John, you're gonna hang a right. You're gonna go to the book of Romans. It's right after Acts. Two books removed from John, chapter 3.23. And this is one of those just really crucial verses. Underline it. Put a line through it, memorize it. Know this about yourself to be true when we start talking about sinfulness. Because in the book of Romans chapter three, verse 23, we learn this. It says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the holiness, or the perfection of God, depending on what translation you're reading. So what Paul writes to the church in Rome is really the same principle that Jesus is hitting this woman and the Pharisees with. He's saying, hey, all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. And in our sin, we have fallen short of God's standard for us. We have fallen short of our ability to be in community with God. Let me talk to two groups of people that are probably in this room tonight. In this room right now, There are those of you who have given your life to Jesus and you are actively figuring out what it means to be a follower of his. Now, the call of God on your life is not your perfection because if you could obtain perfection, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. And so for those of us who are in Christ, we are living in this perpetual state of repenting of our sin and turning towards Jesus. That's group one. Group two would be a second type of person in this room. And group two would be the type of person who has not yet given their, their life to Jesus, who has not yet had Jesus' sacrifice atone for their sins. What the Bible says is everybody, regardless of if you're here or if you're here, has fallen short of the glory of God. That is to say, there is something in between you and God that is keeping you away from being able to have a relationship with him. That relationship is wildly important because it's quite literally what we're here on earth for. We are here to be in a relationship with God, but we can't because of sin. We have something in the way. Oftentimes when I think of this principle, I think of, I think of the world's greatest restaurant. There's two types of people when we start talking about the best restaurants. There's people who think the best restaurant is In-N-Out, and there's people who think the best restaurant is Chick-fil-A, okay? All right. 
I, I'm, I'm like Sweden on this topic. I'm good either way. I'll get a double-double, I'll get a spicy chicken. Here's the point, though. The point is, one day, mom's out of town. I'm, I'm holding down the fort with all four kids. It's about lunchtime, and I go, man, I don't feel like making lunch. You know what we should do? We should go to Chick-fil-A. So I tell all the kids, I say, hey, we're going to Chick-fil-A. I want you guys to get ready, meet me in the car. So I help the littlest one get her shoes on. I grab my wallet, grab my keys. I run out to the garage. Kid one, two, and four are ready to go. And that's kind of a miracle because kid four typically needs a lot of help getting ready, but I think Chick-fil-A motivated her to like get, get the lead out. We're moving, okay? But where is kid number three? Where's Max? Nowhere to be found. And just about the time I am mustering up the strength to get out of the car to go find my son, Again, this is the difference between moms and dads. See, a mom would have already been there. A dad is like honking, like, let's go. We got places to be. And about the time I'm getting ready to get out of the car and go look for him, just like that scene in the original Jurassic Park where the kitchen door handle is like shaking, I look and the garage door handle is like shaking. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. What's going on? And then, boom, coming through the door is my youngest son, Max, with two fistfuls of toys. He's got like matchbox cars and superheroes. And he's just grabbing things that he thinks will make this journey to Chick-fil-A better. And so, again, difference between moms and dads. Moms would probably go like, I'm going to help you put your shoes on, buddy. Dads are like, figure this out. Get your shoes on. I'm not taking those toys out of your hands. And so I watch him begin to put his shoes on. And he's kind of doing this dance, you know, when you don't want to untie your shoes. And you're kind of just stuffing your toes into him. And the kid miraculously gets his shoes on, okay? It's a miracle. But now for the fun part. How is he going to open the car door? with toys in his hands, with something in the way of him being able to do this. I don't know, but I'm really curious to see how this goes. And so I watch, and he walks up the door, and he goes, Dad, can you open the door for me? And I go, yeah, no, nope, not going to open the door for you. And he goes, but I want to go. I'm like, and we're waiting for you, so I want you to come, but I'm not going to open this door, little man. And he goes, and he sits there and takes his little, little fat hands full of toys, and he starts reaching at the door handle like jaws of life, trying to open it. It became so unbearable that I had to open the door for him so that we can get on to the happiest place on earth, right? Diet lemonade, spicy chicken sandwich, all the things. Here's why, here's why, hold on. Here's why I share that story. I share that story because we treat God the same way. What we do in this earth is we want all the benefits that, that being in relationship with Jesus would afford us, eternal life, Love, peace, joy, all the things that the Bible describes can only be found in Christ. We want that, but I don't want to get rid of my stuff. I don't want to get rid of these things. And so when it comes down to laying down my sin to take upon myself Jesus' sacrifice, a lot of us act exactly like my son who at six years old refused to give up one thing to move on to the next. Silly illustration, but the point is this. We have something getting in the way of us being able to be in a relationship with God. Flip one page over in the book of Romans, chapter 6. The book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, first half of the verse says this. It says, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. Wages, meaning what you are afforded, what you are owed, what is due to you as a result of your sin is death. The Greek word translated into English means death. 
In the original language, this word refers to a separation, meaning it's impossible for me to be with God and have sin at the same time because I'm separated. I am spiritually dead where I stand. Any of you have a job in here? Anybody? Any middle schoolers with a job? Yeah? Who? Right here. What's your job? You work in a cherry orchard? That's amazing. That's your hold, hold, hold on. And what do you get paid for working at the cherry orchard? Hold on. Shh, hold on, hold on. What do you get paid? Thirteen an hour. Get it, girl. All right. I like that. Uh, yeah, back here in the blue. Yep, yeah, you. Wait, hold on. What do you do? Okay, and what do you get paid? Oh, he got you beat. Okay, right here, headband. Okay, you take care of your grandma's cats, and what does she pay you? $20 for the whole thing. Okay. It's a little child labor laws being broken there, but we can address that later, okay? Uh, right here, yeah. You put up concrete walls, and what do you get paid? $2 Oh, buddy. Oh, this is why labor unions exist. He doesn't want to. Okay, right here, yep. Wait, shh, 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 shh. Real loud for me. Okay, okay, pause, time out. Unrelated, we're going to get back to the sermon, but what you just described for me, ma'am, is a chore, okay? And that's what we do when we live at home not paying rent. We do chores. So five bucks seems like a steal of a deal if you ask me. Yes, red guy in the back. That's cool. What do you get paid? Okay, all right. I like that. He's going to go far in business. Let's do one more. You want to go? All right. Okay. I found, I found it. I found it right here. You make candy. Okay. Tell me more. What do you do? You sell it? How much money are you making off this candy? It's like an episode of Shark Tank. All right. Now, what's your overhead? Okay. For 20%, I will give you 1000 I'm just kidding. All right. What do you make for it? No, I'm not buying your candy for 100000 That's crazy. But how much money have you made selling candy? One, one or two thousand? Okay, again, not related to the sermon, but if you're going to be a businessman making multiple thousands, we need to know exactly that number, okay? We got to know exactly what that number is. Okay, pause. I'm all done. Come and tell me what your job is. I love that, but pause. Come back here, okay? Here's what I'm trying to, here's what I'm trying to explain to you in this moment. What I'm trying to explain to you is something that is incredibly important for all of us to wrap our heads around. Because the truth in scripture, and if we replay the tape on what we've been talking about in chapels, if we replay the tape, what we see is that there is a Bible that from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 has been telling us one consistent story that one day there is gonna be a savior, there is gonna be a Messiah who will take the sins of the earth upon his shoulders and, and, and sacrifice himself on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. And we know this to be true because Jesus' life and ministry was the embodiment of seeing, knowing, and loving people. And we know this to be true because God, night one, is trustworthy because he made us. Jesus never made any questions about who he was while he walked the earth. He claimed to be God from the very beginning, okay? 
And what this story is telling us, where we have arrived in our exploration and our study of truth this week, is that we don't get to experience these things that we've been talking about because we are owed death. Because our sin has separated us from the love of God. Paul says it another way in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Don't, you don't have to turn here with me, but if you'd like to, you certainly can. And this is a passage that I would say is so worth your time reading while you're at camp. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're just going to read the first few verses. Okay? Ephesians 2 tells us this to be true about sin and about ourselves. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you walked and followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Ready? Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Why? Because where we found ourselves was to be dead in our transgressions and sins. We sinned against a holy and perfect God who is the embodiment of love. It's as if we turned our back on him. It's as if we spit on him. It's as if we betrayed him. It's as if we told him, I am my own God. I need you no longer is the picture that scripture gives us about sin. And this is a massively, 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 what's the next word? Thank you. What was I going to say? It's a big problem, I think, is the point. It's a big problem. It's a massive problem. Why? Because if you and I don't have our sin removed, we never get to experience life the way God intended it to be lived. If you and I don't have our sin removed, we remain removed from the love of God. If you and I don't have our sin removed and we pass away and we die, the Bible teaches that we remain in that spiritually dead state for all of eternity. But here's the problem. You and I were never made to live life outside of the love of God. You and I were never made to live life outside of a loving relationship with our maker and our creator. You and I were never meant to experience this. But sin has robbed us of the very purpose for which we're here on earth for. And what we've learned tonight is that this sin equals a death, that this sin equals a separation, that this sin has removed us from any ability to have a relationship with God. So think back to the beginning of that story. The beginning of that story, we see a woman caught in her sin. We not only see a woman caught in her sin, but we see her dragged before the entire church and have the entirety of all of her secrets, all of her all of her stuff put on display for everyone to see. But friend, don't forget how God handles sinners. Because what we see here, the heart of God, who is a loving father, is someone who does not exist to condemn us. Rather, someone who exists to provide a way for us. But without Jesus providing that way, and without, without us putting our faith in that way, we remain the diagnosis that I am telling all of you is true about you is sinful and separated. A couple years ago, I was sitting in my room reading a book, and I heard this 
call for help from my backyard. So I run down the stairs, and I go back there, and about eight feet up in a tree is my oldest daughter, Marley, who's been teaching herself gymnastics. She's hanging onto this tree by her fingertips. Below her is an old sprinkler pipe that I had kept telling myself I'm going to remove, but I hadn't. So my daughter's in this precarious situation where her grip is weakening, she does not have the strength to do it on her own, and if she falls, she will certainly have a pretty serious injury brought unto her. But what do I do as her dad in that moment? Do I walk away and say, you gotta learn your lesson, girl? Do I, do I grab the hose and spray her just to like make her feel worse about it? No, no friend. I, I, am a, a, I am a human, a very flawed human, and even my, even in my flawed, sinful state, there's enough love in this old heart of mine to reach up and to grab her and to bring her to safety. Why? Because that's my daughter. If you don't have the love of Jesus in your life, you are stuck in a precarious situation and there's no amount of good works and there's no amount of good deeds and there's no amount of knowledge or wisdom or understanding about who God is, about scripture. There's no amount of time you can spend at church. There's not enough money you can give. There's not enough good things you can do to earn the ability for your sin to be taken away. We know this to be true because if there was a way, Jesus would not have had to come and live the life he lived, die the death he did, and be resurrected from the grave. If there was a another way for the evil and the sinful parts of our lives to be taken away, certainly someone would have found it by now. So as I land this message, the thing I want to make very, very clear for each of us is that removed from God's love, removed from the sacrifice of Jesus, taking your sins away where you exist today is separated from God. And this is problematic because those of us who are separated from God will never get to experience life the way that God intended for it to be lived. That sinful, separated state has to be addressed. It has to be taken care of, just like my mom's cancer. Do you know what the doctors did for her? They did surgeries, they did chemotherapy, they did radiation, they put her on a new diet, they gave her rest, they got her a trainer so she could start working out her muscles. They did everything they could do to prolong her life. But you know what the problem is? She still has cancer. Even to this day, she still has cancer. And in fact, in the last few months, it's gotten really bad again. All of that work, all of those things that they did for her, all of that time and money spent at doctors and health insurance and you name it, my dad tried it because he loves his wife. She's still suffering with the results of it. Friend, there's no other way for you to be made whole and holy in the eyes of God apart from a loving relationship with Jesus. Without that, we're still dead and we're still separated. This is the truth. It's a hard truth, but it's something that I want you guys to wrestle with tonight. I want you to think to yourself, is there a moment where I put my faith in Jesus? Do I even believe this? If you don't, that's okay. Talk to your counselor about it. Wrestle with it. Pray for it. Because tomorrow I get to share it exactly what Jesus did to take the sin away from us so that we can spend an eternity with him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for hard truths because hard truths make the gospel so much sweeter. Lord, I pray for the students in this room, deep concepts, hard concepts. Would your word be the thing that speaks to us and teaches us? 
Would your Holy Spirit begin to permeate the parts of our hearts that we've closed off to you? Would you help us to come to the realization that, man, God, apart from you, we are stuck. But with you, we get a chance at new life. Help these students to take this serious and to really ponder where they stand with you. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.